0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, the talking ships of all our tomorrows, and the Blue Ridge Mountain backbone of the Dragon of the Shenandoah, oranges and things that rhyme with Hecata. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, part two and the conclusion of our Authors' Roundtable, that was hosted by Baying Consulting Editor, Advertising Copywriter. If you get the newsletter, you have read his dulcet sentences. And Editor of the Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, David Afsharirod. He hosted a discussion with John Ringo, Gary Poole, Casey Ezell, and Mike Massa. Editors and authors of the great new anthology, Black Tide Rising, which is set in John's Black Tide Rising series. This is uh, John Ringo's science-based zombie apocalypse series that is it's more about the survival and defense of civilization and rebuilding of civilization than it is about running away from zombies. But there's plenty of running toward zombies in the stories in the anthology and in John's books and getting rid of them with a flourish. And, of course, we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's all coming up. Now, here's the news. The July books are, well, not exploding like fireworks, but we would encourage you to save one-tenth of your Independence Day fireworks, and because you're likely a Bane reader, that probably means a lot of fireworks, to announce and celebrate the new books coming out on July 5th. We certainly will be doing that in the Daniel household. I'm going to spend my July 4th out at David Drake's place in the country where um, Bane author Mark Van Name brings huge amounts of fireworks and sets them off. And uh, a lot of people gather to watch that every year. We will be saving the Daniel fireworks to celebrate the coming of the Dragonhammer, my new book. But first, hey, this month brings a new entry in the popular Liaden Universe series by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This book is Alliance of Equals. With the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior on their tail, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position and really just to survive. Aboard the dutiful passage, Master Trader Sean Galen must rebuild Clan Corval's trading business. And he's got along his young heir and apprentice, Patty Galen. She is a great character, by the way. Really like the way Sharon and Steve drew her. Patty holds a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. It is indeed. And hey, we got a great interview with Sharon and Steve coming up on the next podcast talking about Alliance of Equals. And we also have out, in July, The Dragon Hammer by me, Tony Daniel. The Dragon of Shenandoah is calling to Wolf von Dunstig, third son of a duke in an alternate America where the Vikings never left and medieval times stayed and not the restaurant either, but a smellier place where the swords are sharp and will really kill you. It's a land threatened by the plans of a subverted Roman Empire to kill all the dragons and cover the earth with bloodbound slave. Yucks! So my hero Wolf is against that. But he's going to have to fight to stop it if he can. Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, who have been writing stories of the Liadin universe for 28 wonderful years, and The Dragon Hammer by Tony Daniel, the Hugo-nominated author of five science fiction novels, two Star Trek original series novels, two collaborations with David Drake, and one young adult high fantasy series, are both available at booksellers everywhere. This is part two and the conclusion of an interview with John Ringo, Gary Poole, Casey Ezel and Mike Massa, conducted by David Afsharirad, and discussing Black Tide Rising, the anthology that is set in John's Black Tide Rising universe. Part one of the interview can be found on
2: last week's podcast. Hey everybody, it's the Bane Free Radio Hour, and this is me, David Afsharirad, for an unprecedented third week in a row uh, We're going to be talking about Black Tide Rising. This is a just out a couple weeks ago, new anthology of stories set in the John Ringo Black Tide Rising uh, universe. And here to talk about it today, uh, we have Uh, the co-editor of the anthology mr gary pool he has been in the entertainment and publishing industry for nearly 30 years in addition to black tide rising he's worked with john ringo on over a dozen novels and has adapted several of them into screenplays all of which remain in development so we'll uh, keep our fingers crossed for those Uh, he is the managing editor of a successful alternative news weekly in Tennessee and spent years on radio as a talk show host and award winning broadcast journalist. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for being here.
3: Hey, no problem. Makes me sound almost important when you read my bio like that.
2: <laughs> we try. Uh, we also have Casey Izzell. Uh She is an active duty USAF helicopter pilot. Uh, When not beating the air into submission, she writes military science fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Casey, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: Absolutely. We also have Mike Massa. He has lived a diverse and adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer, an international investment banker, and an internet technologist. He is a university cybersecurity researcher consulted by governments, Fortune 500 companies, and high net worth families on issues of privacy, resilience, and disaster recovery. He is, of course, also a writer, as evidenced by his being on the podcast today. Mike, thanks for coming on.
5: Glad to be here and looking forward to
2: it. And last but of course certainly not least, uh, we have the other co editor of Black Tide Rising and the creator of the Black Tide Rising series, Mr. John Ringo. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Black Tide Rising series, as well as the Polseen War series. In addition, he's written the Council War series and the nationally bestselling techno thriller novels about Mike Harmon. He's collaborated with Travis S. Taylor on the Looking Glass series, as well as with fellow New York Times bestseller David Weber on four novels. Uh, that's just a fraction of his output, but we only have so much time on these podcasts, so I had to cut it short. John Ringo, thanks for being on.
6: Yeah, I'm not ADHD or anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: if you look up the word prolific in the dictionary, it says C. John Ringo.
6: Let me do okay. my intro on this. Okay. okay. The wonderful yeah. thing about this particular podcast is that the two most important people are the enlisted people. And <laughs> the officers have to just kind of sit there, right?
3: <laughs> it's, it's the E4's revenge on the O3s.
6: Yes, the E-4s have taken over. It's the E-4 mafia is in charge. Huh? So you're saying, John,
4: that well, the O-3s get to sit there while the E3, E-4s 3 e do all the work? That, that sounds about right, Mike, don't you think? No, no, I mean, no. We
6: made you do all the work. That's the wonder of it. Oh
4: <laughs> we, we assigned also, so you guys to cast a buzz, yeah. I thought you meant for the podcast itself. That's funny.
2: Uh, So there are some familiar names to uh, Bane readers, probably, uh, besides John Ringo. Uh, Eric Flint, Jody Lynn Nye, Sarah Hoyt is in here, Uh, Ted Roberts, who does a lot of nonfiction for Bane.com, but there's a lot of names that maybe aren't quite as familiar. I just wondered um, how you went about assembling the team, uh, Gary and John, of of who you were going to invite to do these stories.
3: Well, when we uh, we sat down on John's porch, and I just had a notepad, and we started throwing names back and forth of people that we knew, people that we liked the writing, and people we thought, from talking to over the years at conventions and stuff, that, you know, had had the gift. And, you know, it started writing. There, there is a really good balance here between very established writers with names that you'll recognize and, you know, the next generation of writers that are coming up. And I can tell you that, honestly, and I'm not just saying this for promotional purposes, there is not a weak story in this entire anthology. I I was incredibly pleased with the work that came in. And one of the names you didn't mention is Michael Z. Williamson, who has uh, done a number of novels for Bane. And his story is probably, hands down, one of the funniest stories in the book, because it is kind of a middle finger at all the people that complain about hoarders and preppers
6: a really short description of the story. Uh, it's, it's basically Mike Williamson when he's really, really old and yeah. his grandkids <laughs> have made him sell all of his guns and all of his preparatory supplies, and then the zombie apocalypse hits, like, right after he sold everything. Um, right. if it turns out that no, he didn't sell everything. Because there's stuff buried in the backyard, there's stuff under the porch, there's stuff, there's stuff in the hidden room behind the basement, there's stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so,
2: yeah, when I was reading it and uh, it remind the thought that came to my head is, and I mean this as a compliment, this story may be peak Mike Williamson, right? Like this is the most Mike Williamson, Mike Williamson story I've ever across come across. <laughs> so.
3: I like um, to refer to it as future autobiographical. <laughs> um, I'd like to
6: comment a little bit on the selection a while back we did uh, I did with uh, it, it's got Brian Thompson on it but it was actually Jim Mins because Brian Thompson passed away um, a uh, an anthology called Citizens the basis of which was all of the authors would be veterans or active duty military it was the Heinleins Citizens quote from Starship Troopers uh, I was initially given a whole list of stories and uh, and potential authors. And I kind of looked over it, and I went, yes, on some, and then no on others. And I pulled in some that hadn't been anthologized in a long time, uh, like Highland's Night of uh, the Long Watch, uh, uh, Exploration Team, uh You know, there were were a lot of Golden Age stuff that I pulled in that you hadn't seen in a long time. And we pulled in some name authors um, on that one, but we were also looking for relative unknowns. And one of the ones that immediately came to mind was uh, Casey, because I knew that Casey had a background in writing shorts. And so I said, Casey, you know, you want to submit? And she was like, oh, gosh, yeah. Um, And it was a great story. Uh, It was just – it was a really awesome story. So when this anthology came up, I went, you know what? Um, You know, Casey's got to be in on this one. Uh, Mike Massa – Hemingway once said that good writer's great, great writer's steal. Most characters in a book have a tendency to be based somewhat on someone. And one of the characters in the the first book – Tom Smith was very actively based on Mike Massa, um, so there was a story that I wanted to write about what was going on in New York in the background of the main book, and I just didn't have the background and I just didn't really have the ideas. So I went to Mike and I said, "Mike, you know, what do you think you can do with this?" And Mike went, "Oh, you know, sure." And he turns in this story, and I'm like, "Holy fornication!" <laughs> this <laughs> <laughs> seals are only good for carrying heavy weights and running long dis- and swimming long distances, dude that I've known for years turns out to be a really fornication good writer um, and you know it 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 you know no offense, Mike, but your story just surprised the fornication out of me um,
5: <laughs> thank you very much,
6: and you know so I was like I was like, holy mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like it, it, it came in and, and like a lot of people kind of set up and went, wow. Um, so anyway, that was that Chris Smith, uh, is somebody else that I've known through the convention circuit for a while. Um, he's an interesting guy. And one of the things is, it's not invariable that a good writer can tell a good story, but, or, or it's not invariable that a good writer can tell a good story or that a good storyteller can tell can write a good story. Um, but uh, Chris seemed to like the kind of guy that would be able to write a good story. So I was like, hey, Chris, you want to try? And his his was good as well. Um, so yeah, that's
3: Casey got to break the news like, to him that he was in the anthology while they were on a panel together. Uh, I think it was Liberty Con, and his reaction was priceless.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. Well, because the 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 whole story is that uh, John actually let the cat out of the bag at the Bain Traveling Prize Prize Show Roadshow. I always get the name of the panel wrong, but it was it was that panel. Yes, yes, that one um, at Liberty Con. And um, John was up talking about the anthology. And to my incredible giddy, giggly high school cheerleader delight, um, I was invited up on the stage to talk about it as well. And, um, and John, you know, started listing off authors who were in it. Um, you know, he said Casey's in it and, uh, you know, Sarah Hoyt's in it and Chris Smith is in it. And I was, I heard that and my eyes went really wide, but unfortunately Chris had gone out of the room because he had another panel that was going on at the same time. So I ran to that panel as soon as, as the, uh, the road show was over and, uh, and made the, and told him during that panel, it was really, it was really, really fun. <laughs>
6: I was under the impression that the primary editor, who you know was handling all of the the details on this, had already informed everyone <laughs> who had been accepted into the anthology that they'd been accepted. So I did not think of that as being a
3: spoiler
6: in the situation. But uh, without well, blaming anyone else, Gary. <laughs>
3: Not not to name names or anything, but the primary editor who's responsible for telling people was waiting for the other editor to say yes and no on everything, so he just decided to do it in front of an entire room full of people at a convention.
2: I think it works. It's like, you know, it's like winning an Academy Award or something. You know, you don't know what's in the envelope until you open it up. Um, well, I wanted to talk to uh, Casey and Mike just a little bit more, which is um, about writing in a, a pre-existing world and um i guess it sounds like uh john you had some something kind of specific you wanted from mike uh casey was that the case with you and uh what what was that like kind of stepping into um a world where there's already like a, there's guidelines set up and um you know a a certain you know world building rules you're going you have to follow
4: well um so to answer your first question, no, I wasn't given a specific topic necessarily to write on. The, the guidance that I was given was essentially, um, you know, we want we want to tell some of the other stories um, that, you know, because there would be other survivors other than the Smith family and the people who went to see that they encountered later in the main series. But there would be others. We want to tell some of those stories. And um, so. uh Again, I, you know, I I talked earlier about sort of some of the sources of of the inspiration for the scenario that I came up with, and I ran that scenario by John and Kelly and um, got the green light, and John made very clear to me that um, at that time he said, look, if you're talking about a team of cheerleaders, understand most of them are not going to make it. Um, In fact, unless you find some sort of source of vaccine, um, you know, you're you're talking 70-30, and if you do find sources of the vaccine, you're, you're probably talking about 50% until they get vaccinated. And so, um, so that was sort of how I came up with who lived and who died in, in my story. Um, and, uh, as far as, you know, what was it like to write in, in someone else's world? Um, the truth of the matter, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, maybe this is a dirty little secret, but the truth of the matter is that I've been, writing fan fiction for my own enjoyment, you know, since I was a kid. Um, I uh um I, I've said before that the whole reason that I'm a, a pilot is because I fell in love with Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern series when I was a kid and I wanted to be a dragon writer. So I would make up stories about what it would be like to be me riding on the back of a Pernese dragon doing the things that Pernese Dragon Riders do. Um so that and and obviously I would follow the rules of her world. So all I really uh, did was. Something. You, know, I, you need to
6: tell Todd McCaffrey that at Lab- Liberty con
4: I told him. <laughs> I, I told him that. <laughs> he was. <laughs> he thought that was funny. Um. But uh. So I um. Uh. So because I the Black Tide Rising books. Um. I I had a, a familiarity with with the universe and with kind of how it worked. Um. And um. Uh. uh John and Kelly sent. Sent me the, the electronic files. So it was easy to go back and search for, you know, like when I wanted to look up, how do you make a vaccine? I was able to, you know, control F and find that section and read through it again and make, you know, make sure that I wasn't violating anything, um, <laughs> by that. But, um, but yeah, no, I, it, because I'd read the works and was a fan of the works, it really, it wasn't hard to imagine, you know, how would I function in this world? How would this character function in this world? So.
2: Mike, uh, how about you? Um, what was it like for you stepping into this uh, universe? It
5: well, first off, it was tremendous. It was a huge honor to be asked to participate, and and many many thanks to John. And I don't I don't think John's giving himself enough credit for some of the coaching and suggestions uh, that he, at least I know that he gave me, um, that I think made the story a lot better. Um, for me, the I automatically assume that a lot of the stories are sure. We're going to end with uh, a very, very, very high body count. Um, Yeah. And again, I I lived in Manhattan for a time, and so I was thinking, man, it's it's cheap to travel there. I can't see how that, you know, this is it's going to be an absolute charnel house. Um, But uh, uh, Gary released a very useful document that was called the Black Tide Bible, which was basically several sheets of facts and timelines and, and key things that all the different anthology writers, uh, contributors could respect. And that actually made it, I referred to that repeatedly, um, especially in the timeline component. Um, yeah, that but, was very helpful. Uh, it was, yeah, it was very helpful. I don't know if that's standard practice. I'm a, I'm a new writer, um, but I found that very, very useful.
3: When you're working in a shared universe with a bunch of writers that haven't written the universe before, especially for a four-book, very long series, John does not write short books, it's really helpful to have a, uh, a handy Bible, it's called a Bible, that kind of gives everything. And I take that from, you know, a television screenwriting background. Uh, when you're writing in for episodic television, which I've done, you, you have a show Bible so that, you know, you know what's gone on before and often have an idea of what's happening afterwards so you can keep within the proper universe. So, you know, that was taking a television practice and putting it into anthology form, which a lot of anthologists do. For, for books like this. And there's a real good reason for it because it helps for consistency amongst facts and figures.
6: Yeah, you know, a lot of my universes, people want to do anthologies in, and they're like, but we need a Bible. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. I've got King James, I've got the Vulgate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> do you know, what?
6: Well, we need to know everything about the universe. Yeah, it's all in my head, man. Unless you can read my freaking head. Um, uh <laughs> find somebody
5: to do it. Oh, hey. Hey Gary. <laughs>
3: yeah,
5: yeah. One of the things that I that I tried to do is have a map laid out and in the in the story that takes place in Manhattan, all the streets, all the directions of turns, all the the names of subway stations, et cetera, are all uh logistically, you know, possible given sort of time and speed calculations for what the birds are doing and where they are and so forth. Um, so yeah, you would never I'm, I'm survive in
3: television, Mike, because we never do that in TV. You have people drive <laughs> from one side of Manhattan together in three minutes, okay?
2: I mentioned that John Ringo wrote two stories for uh, this, but he also wrote an afterword. And at the uh, beginning of his afterword, there's a quote from you, Gary, which is uh, There is something about the destruction of civilization that connects with the modern reader. And uh, John kind of gives his answer, and I'm going to ask him to give an, an abbreviated version of it here in a moment, but I thought maybe uh, Casey, Mike, and, and Gary, you can uh, tell us what is it that you – because zombies are very popular uh, as evidenced by the fact that this was uh, – I think number one on Amazon's science fiction anthology, uh, so congratulations, but, um, and obviously also we've got The Walking Dead and umpteen million zombie movies. So, um, what is it, do you think, that, uh, about the destruction of civilization that connects with the modern reader? Uh, Gary, it's your quote. Why don't you start? <laughs>
3: Well, he's quoting from the foreword in the book that is written by me, a little plug there. Um, It's a short foreword because we talk about this. uh, John and I have a lot of random conversations. We talked about this dystopian uh, fiction that is so popular right now in books and TV shows and movies and video games. Uh, The really popular ones are very dystopian. As a matter of fact, about the only utopian uh, genre out there is Star Trek. But the thing is, is that people, I think, are fascinated with the end of the world. And it's kind of hard to really figure out why. It's just, it connects with the modern reader. The problem that I have with it, and which I addressed in forward, is that far too many of the stories are all about the fall and never about the rebirth. If you think about Mm -hmm. all these dystopian stories and video games and movies, it's all the end of the world but never what goes on afterwards. So, and the the whole series in Black Tide Rising, it is about the rebirth of civilization, the rebirth of society. Sure, we've lost 95% of the human race to a disease, but that doesn't mean everybody just gives up and lays down and dies. We, you know, we as a species are unbelievably resilient. And I actually believe that, you know, maybe not this specific universe, but I believe that people would not only survive any type of dystopian apocalypse, be it a comet strike or whatever, but would work very hard to rebuild and restore some semblance of civilization.
4: So what what Gary's talking about as far as the, the focus of the main series and, um, and also the, the stories in the anthology on, you know, not just how bad it's going to suck when civilization falls, but how do we get through it and how do we build from that on? That is one of the things that spoke to me about the original series that, that, that John wrote, the four books. Um, I hate, a- along with John, I hate zombie fiction. I hate zombie movies. Um, I Um I can't watch The Walking Dead because it pisses me off because I watch it and I think to myself, how would I survive this situation? How would I get my children to survive this situation? And not only are the characters, not only do the characters often make bad decisions that should leave them dead, but it doesn't because it's TV. But, um, and I'm not just talking, I I don't mean to be bashing The Walking Dead, but this this is endemic throughout the genre of zombie fiction that I have seen. John's work stands out as an exception to it because it focuses on the rebirth like gary is saying and that i think is one of the reasons why it resonated so much with readers and fans you know if i can speak for other readers and fans like myself um so that's one of the reasons why i think it's such a wildly popular series and why people are interested enough to hear and read about the other survival stories that john didn't cover in the main series
2: uh mike you have anything to add to that i I think that is a significant
5: marker in this series. And if you if you think back to the very ending of the very first novel in this universe, it ends on an upbeat note, in, in my opinion. Um, and in the second book, one of the things that comes up repeatedly is how unique the Smith family at sea is, because they're the only intact family. They're they're a sort of a precious resource to all of the survivors that somebody can make it, that there there's some normalcy that can be achieved, and there's something to work forward to. It's sort of a reminder for everybody. I think in the third or fourth book, a, a second intact family on a sailboat is found, but they've, they've been out of contact. So, you know, they're in great danger of being infected. So the, the, the cast of the book works to help protect them. And in fact, there's a, I think they call it a, it's called a Zany moment, right, John, where something absolutely ridiculous, but is utterly necessary in the zombie universe has to occur. So a movie is towing, yeah, zany. that's it, is towing a, um, a, a, a small uh, sailboat at sea an extended distance. So it's It's the light at the end of the tunnel that me that I as a reader am working towards um, and i that I appreciate and, and oh, let give me a second uh want you know obviously a wildly successful television franchise um not really a fan because it lacks that piece,
2: yeah, and I you know we're bagging on walking dead a lot, and I think not without good reason, but I think it's also it is um what is the word? It's a synecdoche. I always can't ever say that right for kind of all most zombie fiction, at least or the majority of it. It you know, and I think that's that's why we're picking on it.
3: It's entertaining. It's it's well made. It's well acted. It's got good production values. It's entertaining, but it's just entertainment. John's stories and the stories of the anthology engage the reader's brain. It makes people think. I mean, John's final story in the book deals with an issue that nobody else, I think, had even seen coming. And it's a really deep philosophical debate that I found yeah. utterly fascinating.
2: Yeah. 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 We won't we'll, uh, we won't spoil it, but yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, John, did you, I know you kind of answered that question in your afterword, um, but did you want to say something about what it is that, uh, what it is about the destruction of civilization that connects with the modern reader?
6: Human beings are not evolved to live in large civilizations. Uh, We involved in relatively small groups and septs, and we constantly replicate this. Uh, Casey was talking about, you know, cheerleaders. Our high schools are based around Paleolithic tribes. Uh, They all have their individual shamanic mascot, whether it be the Wildcats or the Panthers or the Bears or whatever. Um, The kids in the schools organize themselves in very, very Paleolithic, Paleolithic ways uh yet within each of those Paleolithic tribes, an individual was important in a way that most individuals in civilization are not. So if you take civilization away, then the individual can put themselves into a situation where I can succeed in this situation and I can be important within a smaller tribe. And that is a big aspect of the Mad Max movies, The Walking Dead, the... Uh, um, all the very various post-apocalyptics. Everybody's talking about zombie books now. You know, it's all zombies, 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 zombies. During the 1950s, it was all, on TV especially, it was all TV and movie. It was mutants, mutants, mutants. Um, during the 1980s, it was uh, the 1970s and 1980s, it was the nuclear war that was going to happen at any moment. Um, Terminator, the future of Terminator, is essentially a post-apocalyptic survivalist environment. Uh the other thing that was in the nineteen seventies, which was what Mad Max came out of, was the complete depletion of all resources. Uh so you see this consistently, but it is uh it it's all about people trying to graft back to the Paleolithic
2: tribe. That's my take on it. That's a, that's an interesting take that I don't think I've heard before, but it makes a lot of sense when you lay it out like that to me anyways. Well, guys, we're getting close to being out of time here, but I wanted to ask, uh, I felt like there were some hints dropped, and uh, I do uh, know a, li- a n- little bit about this, but I wanted you guys to tell the readers what is next for uh, the Black Tide Rising series. Is this it, or is there going to be more?
3: <laughs> but wait, um, there's more. If you order now, <laughs> there is a preset <laughs> of Gensu 9.
2: Yeah,
6: there's a... Uh, uh, I'm I I'm outlining the next core book right now. Um, one aspect of that outline is waiting on another book, which I can't announce yet because it's going to be announced at LibertyCon. Um, mm-hmm. I, I need to know some of the stuff that goes on in that book before I can decide how the next core, core book goes, because we might be linking some characters back up. Um, and as to an additional anthology, we are... Uh, we're in discussions about that.
2: Got, got a few things working for those, uh, who like the series and who are, uh, wanting more. Um, Gary, did you have anything to add to that or, or no?
3: Well, one of the things I just wanted to point out, uh, for folks that are, uh, people that like to attend the science fiction conventions, we talked about two conventions that a lot of us go to a lot, which is LibertyCon in July in Chattanooga. And DragonCon in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend. At LibertyCon, we're going to have uh, almost all of the writers in the book there for a roundtable discussion and mass signing, and we'll be able to give a lot more information about the future of the series. And I always encourage people to come to LibertyCon. I don't know if they're sold out yet. They're really close to it. or not. Are. So if you haven't gotten your, ma- they're sold out. Well, oh well. But there's Brandy still tickets available today, for DragonCon. Yeah. So, but and I always encourage people to come to DragonCon too because it's more fun you can have in four days. Uh, anywhere else. And a lot of us will be there as well. And uh, there's always a Bing, a barfly suite there. And you can uh, hang out with a lot of writers and fans. and It's just a lot of fun. Uh, conventions, I strongly encourage people there because, you know, you'll get us in casual and we'll talk about the future and the series and the stories. And we we'll hopefully won't be worrying about spoilers or having to say fornication.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, in closing, uh, I want to ask one last question. So John Scalzi and Dave Klecka uh, wrote a story called On the Wall, which is uh, entirely dialogue, two characters talking, and they get into, uh, it's, and it's pretty funny at times, and it's a good story. And um, one of the characters wants to play the game of which celebrity do you think made it out of the zombie apocalypse? So I want to close with everybody. We go around the circle. If there is a Black Tide Rising zombie apocalypse, which celebrity do you think would make it? Uh I'll let whoever wants to start, start.
6: First of all, I already covered a whole bunch of celebrities that did and didn't in one of the books.
3: For that example, Paris
6: Hilton did not.
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> Paris Hilton did not. But on the other hand, but I she would did like come
4: to up. point out, Ed. John, huh? if you don't, if you don't mind, John, I would like to interrupt you to point out that two of the ones at, at, at least two of the ones that you that you did have survived happen to be helicopter pilots. So, you know, just saying we're kind of badass <laughs> like that.
5: Which
6: two? <laughs>
4: Harrison Ford oh, and uh, yeah.
6: the Prince. Yep. Who,
4: who yeah. Who was the other and, one. Uh, uh the Prince. The Prince is a helicopter pilot. Both princes are helicopter pilots.
6: Really? Oh yeah, I, I wasn't counting the Prince. I thought you meant one of the celebutants that was in the
4: Oh no, no, no. Yeah.
6: Okay.
3: No, Harrison Fort has a in Star Wars, Wars, but he'll survive the zombie apocalypse.
6: <laughs> right. <laughs> Cool. Well, from the discussion that was in that, okay, one of the things I've got to totally disagree with, or, or I can't remember if it's agree or disagree, but no, no, um, Angelina Lee definitely survives. I think because okay. I think
3: that's. I think, she's just I so ass. Yeah. She's you know, if she gets vaccine, she's
6: a hundred percent. So are her kids. She's going to kill anybody, any zombie that gets near her. Yeah, kid. I think
2: you agree. I think they said she would make it, but Brad Pitt would not. He's he's movie tough, not real world tough. Is what. <laughs>
6: Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves is going to be safe.
2: Well, <laughs> uh, my pick, I was going to say, I think William Shatner makes it, Captain Kirk. I know he's in his 80s. I think he still makes it. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong.
3: I think David Lee Roth would make it because he's a New York City paramount. Yeah, he
2: probably would.
3: Um, uh, the, the guy from Fargo
6: and and re- Reservoir Dogs um,
5: with the teeth.
3: Steve Buscemi? Yeah, Steve Buscemi makes it. Yeah, he yeah. said. New- yeah,
5: New, yeah, 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 New, 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 New York City. Yeah, that's right. The Arlie Ermy going to make it and love it at the same time. Arlie Ermy is
3: immortal. He's immortal. He's, he's, he's going to live to like a oh, thousand years. Hang on, a and second. Well.
5: Hang on a second. I just
6: got the image of Arlie Ermy and Shatner on a on a on a sailboat with a whole bunch of supermodels. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay, that better be in the next anthology. That's I don't I don't know what you guys are gonna have to do to get the rights to the likeness, but it better be in the next anthology. That's all I can say. Um, <laughs> I, all right. If you are a marine,
6: gunnery sergeant.
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
4: I want to see Arlie Ermey's encounter with Faith. That's what I want to see.
5: <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: All right, guys. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun. Do we have uh, anything, One, la- any last comments that you, we want to get in uh, before we wrap it up here?
4: I I have a comment, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. Absolutely. I'd <laughs>
4: like to seize this public forum to say uh, thank you to John and Gary both for um, for the opportunity and for the invitation to play in John's world. Because it, it really was a lot of fun. And uh, um, I really enjoyed it. So thanks for the trust, guys.
6: This is my She said better
5: than I can
4: say it.
6: To this day, it is a little bit weird for the former paratrooper border maggot to have O3s saying thank you for something. (laughs) (laughs) John, your officers must have been
4: dicks. I thank my E3s all the time.
3: (laughs) I was in TRADOC. All of our officers were anyway. Uh,
6: well you weren't actually in the army you were in tradoc
3: thank you for pointing that out (sighs)
4: all
2: right guys well uh it's been a lot of fun uh thank everybody mike massa um casey azelle gary pool and john ringo the book as we have been talking about if you haven't figured it out yet is black tide rising it's an anthology it is out in hardcover from bane uh from reputable and disreputable booksellers everywhere as i like to say um so pick it up you will not be disappointed guys thanks so much uh for being on and for talking with us it was uh, a lot of fun
4: thank you
3: thank you my pleasure
1: now we continue with our complete Audiobook Serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore It seems Cinnabar's chief spy master is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyber-spy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry. Of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore.
0: Chapter 2, Bantry Estate, Cinnabar. The run back to Bantry Village was long and tedious at the best speed the skiff could manage. But Daniel found that he didn't care. He sat, more comatose than relaxed, in the bow while Hogg held the tiller. Not that much guidance was required. That was too bloody close, Hogg said harshly. He didn't need to detail what he was thinking of. Even this close to shore on a calm day, the skiff was unsteady when they crossed the inlet through the barrier islands. Bantry's seawall protected the houses, and the commercial fishing fleet needed the inlet to shuttle between the sea and Bantry's processing plant. I wasn't afraid at the time, Daniel said, opening his eyes. Now every time I think about that eel's fangs, they get another inch longer. They were bloody long enough in all truth, Hogg said. I don't guess you could see him, but I bloody could. I didn't get a good look till you put a spike through his brain, Daniel agreed. That was a nice thrust. Nice as I ever made, Hogg said, but he sounded desperate and angry rather than deservedly triumphant. I wasn't bloody sure I could do it. I was sure, Daniel said, which was the truth, but he'd have said it anyway. Hogg had been afraid because he had nothing to do but wait while death wriggled toward the young master. Daniel had been busy trying to splash backward with one hand and to guess where the skiff was and where the eel was, while all the time planning how to get himself into the boat, while holding the lure in the water with his left hand till the last instant. He hadn't had time to worry about dying, though if asked he would have said it was probable. Wolf eels weren't exactly poisonous, but their fangs were so septic with decaying flesh that the chance of surviving a bite was negligible. Daniel looked up at the seawall as they puttered toward the little harbor, a niche behind a breakwater where small craft could be dragged out of the water. He had thought that Miranda might be waiting up there for him, but the only greeting was a chorus of, hey, squire, from Hebney, Colfax, and Riddle, who spent most of their time on the seawall drinking ale. Two of them were crippled and all three were old. They weren't so much idlers as past the ability to work. Miranda hadn't known when he would be back after all, and she couldn't have expected an ordinary afternoon's fishing to lead to, well, what it had. Og nosed them into the little harbor. Daniel, Miranda cried, springing up from a concrete bench cast into the breakwater. She had been on the dock, not up on the seawall. Oh, Darling, I'm so glad to see you. Got it, said Hogg, grabbing a bit to steady the skiff. He waited to tie up until Daniel had stepped out. Daniel hugged his fiance. He was a little embarrassed to have thought that Miranda hadn't come to greet him, and more than a little worried because her greeting was so enthusiastic. Did she know? Daniel, Miranda said, stepping back slightly. I invited Tom Sand to dinner tonight. If I did wrong, I apologize, but it sounded important, and I didn't know when you would be getting back. Of course it's all right, Daniel said heartily as he wondered what was going on. I'd better get cleaned up. I went swimming to free the lure the last time. Which was enough to say about the fishing trip, he decided. Miranda knew his work was dangerous, but there was no need to tell her how dangerous bad luck could make his leisure. He gestured her ahead of him to the cast staircase, the steps were slippery, so that put him in a position to catch her if she fell. A vanishingly improbable event, but a reflexive matter of courtesy. That's uh, the builder, you mean, he added. Ah, and he's coming for me, not Adele? The only Tom Sand Daniel knew was the major contractor who, as a favor, though Daniel wasn't sure who the favor had been to exactly, had built the community building which Daniel had given to Bantry. Daniel had gotten on well with Sand the few times they'd met, but they were barely social acquaintances. Sand was also the husband of Bernice Sand. Daniel knew as little as possible about Adele's intelligence work, but he couldn't help making that connection when heard the name. Yes, Miranda said, pausing for Daniel at the top of the seawall. I told him you were out fishing, so I don't think he could have thought I meant Lady Mundy. Another woman would have told me that I was treating her as though she were a moron. Daniel said. You are far too sweet to say that, even if it's true, for which I apologize. He grinned and kissed her. A pair of housewives chatting on one's doorway giggled, and a man, one of the trio on the seawall, cackled, Give her another one, squire! She's too pretty to stop there! Miranda was tall and fair, attractive by any standard. She wasn't beautiful at a glance, but even on first meeting, she had projected an aliveness that set her apart from the conventionally lovely girls whom Daniel had dated to that moment. Daniel waved to the idlers, but avoided eye contact. He was the squire whenever he visited Bantry, in fact, though not by law. He had the respect of everyone on the estate and their due deference also. But a free citizen's deference didn't mean slavish cowtowing. Though Daniel was first among equals, the folk he'd grown up with were his equals as men and women. It was a little awkward, Miranda said in a low voice as they walked toward the manor house. Cloris, the housekeeper, Widow Green, took the call and told me that Master Sand was calling for the squire. I picked up the phone and said that you were fishing, but that I'd have you call back as soon as you got in. And I called him Tom because of course we've been introduced. Right, said Daniel, nodding. He hadn't seen the problem yet, but he knew there had to be one for Miranda to be agitated. He hadn't planned to tell anyone but you that it was him calling, Miranda said. Cloris recognized his voice, and I didn't realize that he hadn't identified himself. He was surprised when I called him Tom. Daniel laughed. Cloris has an ear for voices, he said. I doubt she's heard Tom Sands speak more than half a dozen times in all her life. And that, just a few words each. I certainly wasn't expecting to hear from him. He looked sharply at Miranda as they reached the veranda. Did he say what it was about? He asked to come to dinner, Miranda said, entering as Daniel held the door for her. He said his wife wouldn't be along. I told him that he was welcome and that if he liked, I'd leave Bantry. She paused in the front room. The rambling old building was being spruced up now that Daniel was spending time at Bantry again. But the air held a cutting hint of the bleach, which was being used on the mold. He said he wouldn't think of putting me out, but that yes, he'd appreciate privacy with you during dinner, she continued, holding Daniel's eyes. I know it wasn't my place to invite him, but he sounded so worried, and I didn't know how to get to you. Daniel took her hands. Miranda was as concerned as he'd ever seen her, afraid that she had interfered in his business. Throughout their relationship, she pointedly had tried at all costs to avoid that. Thank you, dear, he said. You did right. You had to make a decision and you chose the better of two options. Either was acceptable, and anyway, I wouldn't be upset if you'd guessed wrong. So it's three for dinner, Miranda, Mistress Green said, calling across the front room. Daniel and Miranda were still in the entrance hall with old paddles, fishing poles, and yard tools, some of them broken. Two, Cloris, Miranda said, looking over her shoulder with a bright smile. I'm going to check with Gwen Higginson, wife of the head of the fish processing plant, to see if they've got room at table for me while the men talk business here. Mistress Green snorted. If she didn't, she'd put her husband out in the shed to make room, she said correctly enough. Chloris, Daniel said. Hogg and I caught some sprats. Tom Sand and I will have those, but I've got to shower. That car of his will make it from Zenos in two hours if he pushes it. I've laid clean clothes on the bed, Miranda said. She caught concern in the slight tenseness at the corners of Daniel's mouth. No, nothing fancy, she protested. Just like what you're wearing, RCN Utilities, only clean. And a newish pair, one that you haven't split up the seat. Laughing as though he hadn't momentarily feared that he would find his dress whites waiting for him in the bedroom, Daniel walked through the front room on his way to the showers at the back. Miranda stayed beside him. I tried to think what Adele would do. She grinned, but the expression had a wry tinge. That didn't help much, she said, because I realized Adele wouldn't be out of contact. Daniel laughed in real humor as he bent to take off his soft boots a pair of shower shoes waited just inside the door of the large tile room. He was very lucky to have met Miranda Dorst. Sorry, though, he was that the occasion of meeting had been the death of her brother under Daniel's command. Adele isn't a magician, love, he said as he stripped off the utilities he'd worn fishing. The fabric dried quickly, but the many pockets were damp and probably held weed and mud. I grant that she seems to be one sometimes, Daniel turned on one of the three shower heads. Instead of a drain, the runoff slanted down the floor and through the gap under the outer wall. One good thing about this Tom Sand business was that Daniel was no longer thinking about the wolf eel and what hadn't quite happened. He grinned. Instead, I can worry about what Mistress Sand's husband needs to tell me in secret and what that means for me and Adele. Zenos on Cinnabar The shippers and merchants' treasury had become Adele's bank shortly after she had returned, returned from exile, to Zenos. It was the first time in her life that she'd had money of her own, a share of the prize money won by Lieutenant Daniel Leary for himself and his crews. Adele, much to her surprise, had been included in the share-out. As she and Tovera came up the sidewalk, the doorman smiled and opened the bronze grilled door with a flourish. Very glad to see you again, Lady Mundy, he said. Adele hadn't entered the bank in several years. She had no call to. Had the doorman been warned to expect her, or was his visual memory really that good? She smiled, or at least almost smiled, as she gave the doorman a nod of response. Deirdre Leary was in her different way just as able as her brother, so both were probably true. Adele stepped into the lobby of dark wood, polished stone, and more bronze. She was sure that the shippers and merchants handled its affairs with state-of-the-art technology, but it made a point of looking quaintly old-fashioned. Comfortably old-fashioned, some people would say. For those who wanted more modern surroundings, there were other Leary enterprises to accommodate them. Adele noted the significance of the fact that Deirdre, who was the managing partner of most of those enterprises, had chosen the shippers and merchants as her personal headquarters. The majority owner in all cases was almost certainly Leary, the man who had wiped out the other members of Adele's branch of the Mundy family. If Adele had looked into the matter and found proof of that ownership, she might feel that she had to do something. She would never look. She wasn't interested in business. The teller's cages were to her right. On her left, across the lobby from them, was the manager's office and a conference room. There was also a door in the back wall under a painting of two men clasping hands over a table. That door opened and Deirdre Leary came out. Lady Mundy, a pleasure as always, she said. I appreciate you taking the time to see me on such short notice. Deirdre had dark red hair and a tightly lacquered expression. Though her features were similar to those of her younger brother, there was nothing of the friendly openness that Daniel projected. Deirdre stepped back, saying, Won't you and your servant come into my office? I'll wait in the lobby, said Tovera. Her voice was emotionless. After all, someone might come in to rob the bank. Just as you choose, Deirdre replied, equally deadpan. She closed the door behind herself and Adele. Adele sat on a carved wooden chair without being directed and took out her personal data unit. Whatever the purpose of this meeting, it was more than simply social. Adele's relationship with Daniel's sister was equivocal. Deirdre clearly had her brother's best interests at heart to a greater degree than Daniel probably realized. She had done Adele herself many favors over the years that Adele had served with Daniel. That did not make Deirdre Adele's friend. It just meant that Adele felt a degree of obligation to the other woman, which she would willingly repay if circumstances permitted it. Deirdre was also her father's representative in matters of business. Adele owed Corder Leary a debt also. Because of her friendship with Daniel, she wasn't actively looking for an opportunity to pay it. But if she ever happened to come face to face with Speaker Leary, she would make every effort to shoot him twice through the eye. Daniel would understand. And Deirdre would certainly understand. Deirdre settled into the chair behind her desk. The room's furniture was of dark, carved wood, with leather seats on the chairs and a leather pad framed by wood for the desktop. May I ask if you expect to be working on a major project in the next few months? I do not, said Adele. I am waiting to die, she thought, which, of course, could be said of every waking moment of her life. In context, All that mattered was that nothing she was doing at present was of the least interest to anyone else, particularly to Mistress Sand. Because Deirdre waited instead of leaping in with a comment, Adele said, Daniel is relaxing at Bantry. He invited me to join him, but I wasn't raised to appreciate the delights of rural life. She smiled slightly. Fortunately, Daniel and I know one another well enough that I don't have to pretend interest in his offer to avoid offending him. At some point, probably very soon, judging from Daniel's past behavior, he will decide that he wants another command. I will expect to accompany him when he does. I see, Deirdre said. She tented her fingers before her on the black leather, then looked up to meet Adele's gaze squarely. She said, I'm being blackmailed over financial and political matters. I need someone to act for me in the affair. If you are willing to take on the problem, I will give you a carte blanche to solve it. She made a dismissive gesture with her left hand and added, and of course pay you whatever fee you set. The fee was minor to both of them. To Deirdre because she controlled vast wealth, to Adele because she didn't care very much about money. Give me the background to the situation, Adele said quietly. She had considered the request thoroughly in her several seconds of delay. Her first impulse, as generally, had been to begin searching with her data unit. She smiled inwardly. It would have been difficult to get the information that way, though it would have been interesting to try. Deirdre nodded. A Pantellerian businessman named Arnaud, she said, has become a member, the leading member of the Council of Twenty which rules Pantelleria since the planet regained independence following the Treaty of Amiens. Adele had noticed a minuscule hesitation before Deirdre began laying out the data. But it had been no more than Adele's pause before she decided to pursue the matter instead of walking straight out of the office, the bank, and Deirdre's life. There had been none of the usual maundering. This must remain secret or you'll have to swear not to say anything about this or other such nonsense. Deirdre had asked for Adele's help. Adele had asked for information which she would need to provide that help. Nobody who knew Adele would have assumed that she would accept a proposition without learning the details for anyone except Daniel Leary. At the beginning of the recent war, between Cinnabar and the Alliance, Arno owned a small repair yard, Deirdre continued. In the course of the war and after Pantelleria had been annexed to the Alliance of Free Stars, Arnaud found outside investment to expand his yard and to construct ships of some size. Among the Yard's projects were five or six destroyers, which operated as elements of the Alliance fleet in battle against the RCN. Deirdre grimaced and stared at her fingers again for a moment, then looked Adele in the face again. I was the outside investor in Arno's Yard, Deirdre said. That is, Bantry Holdings made the investment. She smiled wryly. It's been quite profitable for us, she said though peace will require some adjustments. I would have expected you, Adele said carefully, to have walked through a series of cutouts, which would make it impossible for the investment to be traced back to Bantry Holdings in a provable fashion. Then Adele shrugged. There could be allegations, she said, but there are always allegations. Your enemies will believe them, your friends will pretend that they don't. Deirdre made a sour face. Under ordinary circumstances, she said, that would be true. Though I'll admit that when I looked at the detailed records, I found that the security arrangements weren't as complete as I would have wished them. My primary concern, however, is that Counselor Arnaud is the party threatening me. He probably can prove our close association during the war. I see, said Adele, because she suddenly did see. Please wait a moment. Deirdre had said that she was the blackmail victim, but in fact the information led to Bantry Holdings, which she now managed. At the time the initial investments were made, Deirdre could not have been more than ten or twelve years old. Corder Leary himself had been in charge. Adele felt her lips quirk into a smile. She had allowed herself to pretend that she could associate with the Leary family, but not with its patriarch, Speaker Leary, who had murdered her family. Reality had just forced its way to the front, as it had been certain to do unless Adele had died before that happened. She had two options. On reflection, she found herself unwilling to cut herself off from Daniel Leary and through him the RCN, the first real family Adele had known in her life. All right, Adele repeated. In for a soldi, in for a florin.
1: That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to David Afsharirad, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a boatload of grenades for use in zombie ship clearance and a huge round of applause from the Van der Angels for making the Earth a more interesting place to look down upon, to John Ringo, Gary Poole, Casey Ezel, and Mike Massa, editors and authors of the exciting and zombie-crunching anthology Black Tide Rising. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.